0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: January 9, 2018, was a big day in the history of Westminster Seminary, California. On that day, the seminary welcomed distinguished visitors from across the globe as we celebrated the inauguration of the fourth president in the history of the seminary, the Reverend Mr. Joel E. Kim. He follows in the footsteps of Dr. W. Robert Godfrey, who served as president for 24 years, and Drs. Robert G. Dendalk and Robert B. Strimple. We know how important inaugurations are. Americans witness them every four years as a president, chosen by the Electoral College, takes the oath of office. And so it is here. The faculty were in their academic regalia. Dr. Godfrey gave a solemn charge to Professor Kim. The chairman of the board read the oath of office. And President Kim took the oath before God and the board and the faculty and the uh, assembled there in the uh, chapel. Perhaps most importantly, President Kim gave his inaugural address. Though it might be tempting to dismiss such remarks as mere formalities, history tells us that they are much more than that. For example, if you want to understand the history of Westminster Seminary, California since 1993, one needs to read the inaugural address that Dr. Godfrey gave in 1993, which you can do because it's published in two volumes, Always Reformed, and also the volume A New Old School, both published by Westminster Seminary, California. The Kindle version of Always Reformed is available via Amazon. The president of Westminster Seminary, California, inherits a legacy, but he also sets a path for the seminary, and the inaugural address is his statement of that path. So it seemed like a good idea to sit down with Joel and discuss his inaugural address and to find out about the state of the seminary and his thoughts about the future of Westminster Seminary, California. As I say, Joel is president of the seminary and assistant professor of New Testament. He's taught New Testament here since 2005. He's also a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America and co-editor and contributor to Always Reformed Essays in honor of W. Robert Godfrey. This is part one of a two-part episode. Hi, Joel, and welcome back to Office Hours.
2: Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me.
1: So, first of all, what is the state of the seminary? And the background of the question is this. One of the things that you do as president is twice a year to address the board when they visit the campus for board meetings. And most people don't get to hear those remarks. But we gather for lunch, and then after lunch, you give an update as to how things are going and what's happening. So I thought as we talk about the state and future of the seminary, not that I want you to necessarily give a state of the seminary address, but give us some idea of what's happening here at Westminster Seminary, California.
2: It's not as grand, nor as long as the State of the Union address (laughs) in thinking through what's all going on. But I can begin by pointing out that the seminary is in a good place. The Lord's been very kind to us for 37 years. You mentioned the presidents who preceded me, and they have laid a wonderful foundation for the seminary, both theologically and financially, frankly. And so for many of us, we benefit from their years of sacrifice and service. We're standing on the shoulders of these men as we continue to build upon the solid foundation that we've inherited from them. As a result, theologically, I believe that our faculty is united. Our staff members are here because they're focused on the mission. They believe in it themselves, as well as the board members whom the Lord has brought together to assist and guide and advise us as we go forward as an institution. There is a feeling of harmony, as well as unity in our focus in terms of serving the church together. We have some exciting things going on on campus, which also indicate the financial stability of the seminary. Not only do we have many faithful givers and friends who have walked alongside us for these four decades, But we have many who have given to this new campaign that we have going called Building a Firm Foundation, which is putting up a 64-unit apartment complex, a residential village for our students, where we're simply saying that our educational philosophy is that we believe that pastors and leaders of the church should be trained face-to-face living together, learning together, eating together, praying together, and studying together. Really, that's the way that we nurture and shape our students. And this is an exciting time for us as we put up these buildings that are going up right next to us, as we see it on a regular basis. It allows us to kind of think about and dream about where the Lord is leading us, but also it is a reminder to us that the Lord has brought to us a lot of friends and supporters who encourage us by their giving and by their stewardship as well. And then, of course, as you know, the best part of our school is really our students students who come from many countries as well as many states in the U.S. who come together to this small city called Escondido, California, so that they can be shaped for two, three, four, five years to be the kind of pastors and leaders and scholars and missionaries and other servants of God. And their presence here really is exciting for the faculty members because their bright eyes encourage us and motivate us as we study and research. They're going forth to serve in the various parts of the world. And as we hear the news from them and their ministries, we're so encouraged by that as well. And it gives us the energy as we carry on. So the Lord has been bringing a steady stream of students, and we expect the same for this fall as well. So the seminary is doing well by God's grace. And we look forward to, with dependence, seeing how the Lord continues
0: to surprise
2: us as he allows us to continue on our ministry here.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: As you and I talk, it's February 1, 2018. And when do you think the housing will actually be available? When will people begin moving in? And I ask that because as I look out over the building project and drove you know down the street in front of the project, now several of the places have windows and they're actually painting the stucco and putting in the electrical. I mean, it really is starting to look like something. I still am amazed because when you look over the top of it, you don't really get the sense of it. And then you drive down almost in sort of a canyon and you drive along the thing. Here you're surrounded by these giant buildings.
2: It's amazing. I was texting with a friend of mine in a different state who was here a few months back. He wondered if I can send him a panoramic picture of the housing going up. And when I sent it to him, this is merely a week ago, he sent me a picture from his visit three or four months ago from the same spot, a similar panoramic view. And the difference is amazing. That is to say, we've been at this for about a year and a half, but we've seen the most change in the last six to nine months or so. And as we head into February 2018 we anticipate that everything that we need to complete for the building will be done by the middle of May what that means is we're going to have an opening ceremony toward the end of May and the students can technically move in by the beginning of June although our school year begins basically on July 1st and our students first join us toward the end of July for summer Greek so we hope that we will see our first stream of students moving into their apartments by the beginning of July but the building's themselves. You're exactly right. Not only are most buildings now complete on the outside as we kind of paint and put finishing touches, the inside is being worked on where the places are being painted, the counters are being placed in, the cabinets are also being built in for some of the units as well. It's a beautiful unit and we look forward to seeing it open up in a short few months here. I was talking to the elder who's in charge of this. Pete Serra is his name whose dedication to this project has been phenomenal to watch on the side for us
1: that should be highlighted right because pete is part of a i guess a big construction company at least it looks that way to me what do i know but it looks that way and you know he's here all the time
2: right? We jokingly tell him that we should give him an office because (laughs) he does own a large company and many of the buildings that we see in this city and elsewhere are the results of his company's work. Not only Pete, but it's a larger company with a partner as well. And um, this is a labor of love. I don't know how one can
1: describe it any other way. It's not just business, right? He's invested in this. So when I roll up into the parking lot, oftentimes there is Pete, in his pickup truck with his hard hat on, with his uh, orange vest on, a safety vest, and a cell phone in his hand. And he's in the midst of this thing all the time, supervising it uh, right down to the details, so. I
2: wanna make sure that, you know, all of us know how many people are involved in this work and how many people have given for this project. It's amazing the sacrifices made uh, by known and unknown people to do the work. And so this is not to simply say, you know, Pete is the only guy because so many people have but Pete has made extraordinary sacrifice let me give you one example nobody probably knows this but a few weeks back we put in concrete at the opening of our gate and that concrete needs to set for several days if not week plus and so large trucks cannot Drive over it. But there is some emergency where there had to be some movement of trucks that was going to take place. And somebody had to be here to watch so that people can be given proper warning so that they don't go over that concrete. This was one o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night. You know who was here? It was Pete because wow. he didn't want to ask somebody else to do it because they need their rest for worship the next day. Here is the guy who is the one overseeing the whole project, who loves this project and is here watching. Some So that trucks can go by without ruining the work that was previously done. I don't know how many people are willing to do that and are able to do that. But this has been a labor of love for many. And this is decades in coming because this was a mere dream in the minds of many. This was the initial plan to begin with, that there be residential village here on campus. But we're now seeing 40 years of prayers being realized by God's people who give their gifts and resources in such sacrificial ways. And we're incredibly grateful.
1: Yeah. And so Pete really is in some ways a symbol of the work that so many people are doing. Marcus MacArthur, our vice president for administration, he has hard hats in his office, and he's got his hands on this project all the time. Countless. So Countless. And there's so many other people. So just even to mention two names, obviously, there are lots and lots of people whose names are not being mentioned, but we know who they are, and we're thankful you know, and the Lord knows, which is the most important Absolutely. thing. So, so very exciting. So prospective students, new students, when they come in, whether they come this, spring or they come this summer, they are going to have a brand new place to live. Right on campus. And it's going to be very affordable as they move in. The rent that they're going to be paying is going to be less than they would be paying if they were living off campus.
2: Part of the reason for this project to begin with was a goal to bless the students, bless the students by providing affordable housing. A lot of people, when they think of California, the first thing that comes to their mind is the cost of living. And we recognize that in comparison to large cities, we're not extraordinary, but for many of the students who are coming from states where the cost of living is far lower this can be a sticker shock and what this project allows us to do because of the generosity of many givers and donations that have been made it allows us to rent the space out at an incredibly low rate in comparison to what's around here. That allows us to bless the students by reducing their financial burden. At the same time, it creates an environment, a community of learning where the students both from out of state, in state, and from out of the country can come together and to live together. And this is important not only for students who are studying, but their spouses. Spouses who seem often detached from the work taking place, but now they can see it firsthand and for their children as well. A community in which where the learning takes place, not only in the classroom for six hours a day, but the learning takes place for 24 hours a day because they're living with like-minded people, with friendships that are built for mutual encouragement for the long haul. And so that's the kind of community that we hope to see and build with the buildings going up. So always the goal and the end game has been about the students, and we hope to see that realized soon.
1: And I was just looking at this app on my phone that keeps track of the weather for me, Do you know what the high temperature is to be today on February 1, 2018, year of our Lord?
2: Knowing that our area needs rain, it's probably going to be too high. But it has been beautiful here for the last few weeks.
1: It's going to be 81 degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs) Now, that's a little unusual for this time of year. Winter skipped us for sure. Yeah. So, and we could use some rain. This is supposed to be our rainy season, February and March. So we may yet get some. We'll see. But uh, I just want the listener to know that (laughs) as they're thinking about particularly where they want to go to seminary and then next January when they're thinking about what they wanna do for a conference, just to bear that in mind.
2: I mean, you know, it is a unique place we live in, and I, I would imagine everyone says that, and this is not to speak down about any other region, but we do have something interesting about our area, not just simply the natural beauty and the weather that we have, and we have that in abundance. We are about 30 minutes from the beach, and it's nice to be able to enjoy the beauty that the Lord has surrounded us with. I will say that few other things that intrigue me about this area, And as a lifelong Southern Californian in many ways, part of the reason why I think this area is an area that I love so much is on the one hand, it's a very diverse area, diverse area both ethnically as well as in terms of cultural trajectories. And we have not just people who are Christians, and certainly this is where Presbyterians do not dominate, but it's an area where all of us see that this is in many ways most of America, where people are unchurched and deeched church or anti-church. And in the midst of it, these churches and this seminary remain faithful in proclaiming the Lord's name. And it's a wonderful place to practice and to exercise one's gifts for ministry. And we find that to be an important part of what this area is. And then, of course, you look out and you, you got the Pacific Rim and the Latin Americas to the south. Part of the diversity results from that. And it allows us to dream big about the Lord's church beyond the walls of Escondido. And to point out that our role here is not only to be able to serve the churches in America, but to serve the churches throughout the world. The world is coming to us. And as a result, many are going out into the world after they study here. And we look forward to seeing how the Lord will open up opportunities for us to continue to serve in that direction.
1: Well, that's right. One of our graduates, Dan Warren, we were just talking about him a moment ago, is in the midst of setting up a broadcast to reach Cuba with the gospel. Mm -hmm. And he just graduated.
2: He's the voice of Cuba for reform preaching, certainly, and we look forward to seeing how the Lord brings together partners for that ministry. He's been there. He continues to record at this moment, and uh, the gospel needs are so great still, and these technologies as well as avenues of ministries are multiplying, and the workers are few. And we look forward to graduating people like Dan and many others who are serving the Lord both locally and globally. And there's no shortage of places where they can go to be able to serve God's people.
1: So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kemp, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village.
2: Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they've actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will Begin in our new residential village.
1: For more information, call toll free 888 480 8474. That's 888 480 8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village.
0: wscal.edu. 888 480 8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ his gospel, and his church.
1: So in your inaugural address, you had three points, so you're a good Reformed preacher, and the first of which was thankfulness. But the whole address seemed to be structured more or less around Colossians. Am I right to discern that? It is.
2: The fun part of preparing for an event like the inauguration was the opportunity for me to look back. We have a book on our institution's history put together by Daryl Hart and Bob Godfrey, which I had the pleasure of reading through several times in the last six to nine months or so, as I'm reflecting upon what the Lord has done here on our campus, through the faculty members, as well as many of our partners and students. And so that was a wonderful reflection time. It also gave me a chance to read through all the inaugurals, all three inaugurals, very different and very unique. It shows the uniqueness of the individuals behind those addresses, as well as perhaps the uniqueness of the time and the environment in which they find themselves. And so it gives you a pause. It gave me a pause to think through. Part of the reason for thinking through Colossians is twofold. On the one hand, I have a particular interest in Colossians and Philemon. I enjoy it. I teach it. It's a book that I come back to over and over again as I reflect upon my own ministry as well as the ministry of Paul. Part of that involves the second part of my enjoyment of Colossians, which is Colossians is written in an interesting context. The church that Paul has never visited, small fledgling church in the midst of the pressures of that time period of the Roman empire. Many in the church were struggling because you have these competing religions as well as competing philosophies and priorities that were placed upon them. And the social pressures were immense to compromise, to syncretize, to be able to alter what they believe in in the midst of these changing times. I think many would acknowledge in our present time that our country, America, is more quickly becoming like the first century than the 20th or the 19th century in terms of the place of Christianity in the American culture. I don't think I have to exegete that too far to indicate the changes that are occurring. And it's also true that similar to the Colossian church, the pressure is immense in terms of the church to compromise, to change what she, is in order to be acceptable in the eyes of the world, it's to them Paul is writing, the Colossians, simply to point out to be steadfast in terms of where they are and who they are in the midst of societal and cultural pressures. And it's this teaching of Paul to these sojourners in a country that's really long forgotten them because they don't share the same identity nor the same priorities. What does Paul remind them of in that context is what intrigues me. I think it's important for our church to reflect upon that. It's important for our institution to reflect that as well as we think through some of the priorities that Paul draws out.
1: Give us some background, Professor. Where is Colossae?
2: Yeah, Laodicea is a city that's named there in terms of one of the cities. It's a near neighbor Hierapolis as well. And one thing that you come to recognize is that you have a lot of important neighbors that are bigger. Paul could have written to the bigger neighbors and we might have writings for them as well. Colossians remains this kind of small, fledgling, struggling church in the midst of bigger churches and bigger cities nearby. And at the beginning, what you have is an intriguing introduction on the part of Paul when he begins by saying that he's writing to faithful brothers, right, in Christ, in Colossae. Now, the translations do not keep the same preposition, but the prepositions the same in the original language. In Christ, in Colossae. And for me, the whole book of Colossians is about how those who are in the former, that is, those who are in Christ, live in the latter. In this case, Colossae. That city could be almost any city. You can fill in the blank as to what city you want to belong to, whether it be Escondido, whether it be San Diego, whether it be Omaha, whether it be a Philadelphia, Boston. It doesn't really matter what city it is. In terms of the whole context, the contextual idea is how do those who are faithful to the Lord in Christ live in? fill in the blank. It just happens to be Colossae. And I think the whole thing then starts to unpack for us this in Christness in this foreign land. And how does one live?
1: Do we know how this congregation came about?
2: I'm not exactly sure if there is any concrete nor definitive conclusions regarding who might have founded the church in terms of the path taken. If you look at the first chapter, Paul talks about the gospel on the move. And as he comes toward the end of it, he talks about the fact that not only did the gospel move, and part of the importance in all this is he wants to remind the Colossians, you know, they don't watch CNN. They don't get the news feed. And here they're wondering to themselves is this message of Christ Jesus worth it for us when there are so many social pressures for us to abandon or compromise? And Paul says, Brothers and sisters, know this you may be small. And you may not see, but the whole world is being turned upside down by the very same gospel that you have. It's an element of huge encouragement to the Colossians that the gospel is at work because God is on the move. Now, toward the end of that initial thankful introduction to the letter, he talks about Epaphras, right? The servant that actually brought the gospel to them. It's intriguing to us because on the one hand, Epaphras is the agent who brought the gospel, now, sent there by God overall, and for many of us in seminaries, this is an encouragement, that God who is on the move, the gospel that is being proclaimed, is brought there by a person, a human
0: agent, a minister. in this case, a minister who is faithful in the proclamation of the Word. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: In the ESV, Colossians one six says, Which has come to you, indeed, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as As it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And that S is capitalized there, in the Spirit. So, the sovereign God used a minister to bring the gospel to Colossae, and people came to faith, and a congregation was gathered and formed. As you say, that's really encouraging to know that God uses means, instruments, and servants. He uses ministers, which is the principal reason why Westminster Seminary California exists, and that is to prepare men for pastoral ministry for Christ, His gospel, and His church. This
2: may sound arcane to some, but We stand firmly on the conviction that it's the proclamation of the Word of God that saves. There are so many different competing ways that people want us to be able to engage in ministry and all those things have their rightful places. But nothing is as central to us as the proper teaching and proclamation of the word. And for many of us who are here teaching, many of us who are working in the front office, many board members and friends who are supporting the work, this is our bread and butter. This is our purpose and mission. That is, we are training men and women to teach and proclaim the Word faithfully, carefully dividing the Word of God. And that's the goal that we have. And we believe that the Lord uses these men and women to proclaim His Word faithfully throughout the world, even
1: now. What were some of the challenges that the Colossian congregation was facing? You mentioned social pressure, and the Apostle Paul warns them, for example, not to be taken captive by false philosophies. And sometimes people have said, well, therefore, you shouldn't ever study philosophy because you might be taken captive. And that's almost certainly not what Paul is saying. But what were some of the ideas, doctrines, ideologies, ways of thinking that worried Paul There are
2: quite a few. In fact, in certain research, some would even indicate that there seem to be over 40 competing religious or philosophical traditions that appear in the writings of Paul in the book of Colossians, Hmm. forcing us to ask the question, was there a monolithic or singular religious opponent? And it doesn't seem to be. Scholars
1: have been trying to figure that out for a long time. For generations. What was the Colossian heresy? And one of the reasons why it's so difficult to figure it out. As you say, there are all these different pieces that are really hard to put together and then find some example of it in the area in the first century.
2: Yeah, it seems to be at times just simply a philosophical idea, understanding or wisdom of some kind that are considered earthly or human. It could be some religious practices, angelic worship of some kind, or things of that nature that seemed counter to what Scripture teaches. It may be just certain moral practices, asceticism demands that are placed, whether that Had religious implications or not, placed upon the church, such that you had all these things competing for both the attention and allegiance, as well as the time of the Christians in Colossae. And what Paul simply says is that that's unhelpful. I think the most helpful way of looking at it has been to understand that what's going on here is some sort of folk religion at work, and the problem of the Colossians is this kind of syncretistic tendencies. Maybe the easiest way I can explain to the folks listening is you might have noticed in your education that there are names for gods that are Greek in origin, and there are names for gods that are Roman in origin, but they refer to the same, whether it be Jupiter and Zeus, or you can multiply those commonalities. And what happens is often instead of saying it's either or in terms of your commitments, The tendency during this time, in this time of pluralism, in this time of inclusivity, was to simply say both and. Well, you have this, we have this, let's make it one. Perhaps they all refer to the same thing anyways, and perhaps people can hear a tinge of what happens even in our own culture at this point. And so syncretism probably best explains the kind of religious ethos of the time. You are being intolerant if you do not accept beyond what your convictions are and bring those in into your fold and accept them as your own. And those are some of the problems that the Colossians were having that Paul was made aware.
1: So you can have Jesus. They weren't necessarily saying you can't believe in Jesus. No. But... You also need to have X or Y. You
2: need to have— It's Jesus plus a blank of any kind.
1: Some kind of legalistic Judaism, some sort of quasi-mystical, esoteric Mm -hmm. religion. There are all kinds of things that seem to be circulating. And as you say, the demand was sort of to add Jesus to these things. And this is what you mean when you use this word syncretism, is mashing Christianity together with essentially non-Christian religious principles.
2: Absolutely.
1: So, at the end of Colossians 1, Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's verse 12. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. That seems to be kind of a decisive turn in a way, at least at that point in Colossians, that turn to Christ and salvation.
2: Absolutely. And then he goes on and he picks up in the original behind it. It's actually a relative clause that begins verse 15, which forces us to read 15 through 20 in the midst of the 13 and 14 you just read. It talks about this incredible grace shown to us, to the Colossians by God, in transferring them from darkness into the light of the sun. In that, he then says, I want to describe to you who this sun is. And he talks about this sun as the creator of all things and recreator or redeemer of all things. And the heart of that description of who he is to simply point out that all things hold together in him that at the end it's the supremacy of christ that's at stake here he is the one who created all things he is the one who redeems us from our sinfulness and it's christ who must be proclaimed it's christ whom we must hold it's christ who must be exalted in always. Nothing else and nothing more. For me, there is an interesting here, perhaps this is an association more than anything else. If you look at Joshua 24, having gone into the promised land, Joshua talks about the fact that, you know what? You can go back to those very gods that you used to serve or your neighbors serve. Which, by the way, whom God just defeated as they you know came into the promised land, you can follow them. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord is what Joshua declares with firmness. There is an element here that Paul is declaring similarly. That is, there are all these competing gods, which by the way, are not real and are being defeated. And the gospel is overcoming them because Christ is real. Here, you can follow them or you can follow Christ in whom are found all things, the Creator and Redeemer of all, is his central message to those who struggle with competing religions, philosophies, temptations that come along the way, that Christ is supreme, no one and
0: nothing else. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.